0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. If you're a parent with school-age children, particularly older ones, this has to be one of the most exciting times of the year. Because it's back to school. Some schools started last week, some are starting uh, tomorrow. Now some of you who are sending kids off to school for the very first time, this might not be an exciting time for you, it might be a little sad. If you are sending a kid off to college, it might be sad and you might be a little poorer tomorrow as a result of that. I sent off two to college last week, so I promise I'm sadder and poorer than probably anybody in this room. But for those of us with kids in the middle, particularly those with teenagers, I'll give you three reasons why this is my favorite time of the year. The one, first, is schedule. I am tired of being the first person up in my house, and I'm tired of my kids staying up later than me. So I am ready to get back on a schedule. Second, teachers in the room, I know there's at least one, I'm ready for you to take care of my kids most of the day. I'm tired of coming home, and the house is a wreck because they've been there all day long. I love my kids, but I've seen too much of them this summer. Number three, back-to-school traditions. I love them. I love first day of school pictures, so share them on Facebook. I like my pictures. I like your pictures, too. I like Meet the Teacher, you know, this person who you don't know, and you show up, and you think, wow, this person's going to have this huge impact on my kid, and I don't even know who you are. I think that's really cool. But I also like... The tradition of the measurement. I don't know how you do it in your house. In my house, the night before the first day of school, we have the measurement that takes place. We have a door jam near the back of the house where we record the kids' height. Oh, yeah, there it is. Um, I didn't take a wide picture because the rest of the room was really messy, and so I apologize. It's kind. Of, it should be kind of a wide picture. It needs to be a narrow And I can assure you that there's a whole batch of little kids closing the gap here. The most important thing about here is you see who's at top, right? Dad, kids still haven't caught me yet, which is one of the advantages of marrying a woman significantly shorter than you. Um, So you might not be able to read that, but I promise you my kids know how to read it. They take great pleasure in celebrating who has grown the most, comparing where they were one year to where another sibling was last year, and there's always kind of celebration of who has passed whom. And maybe it's just having four teenage competitive boys, but sometimes it gets a little rough when someone gets passed. Um, And in the last few years, we've entered this new phase, the phase where not everybody grows each year. In fact, that's not much fun for those folks who aren't growing, and their siblings are, and they get passed. And so Jack and Fritz, who are 20 and 18 respectively, they left town for college. They didn't even measure themselves. Uh, but, and I also point out, if you notice, you know, the line up at top hasn't moved either. I haven't grown in several years, unless you count my waistline, but that's outside the scope of this illustration. We're not going to talk about that. But our younger kids, they look forward to this moment because they have the expectation of growth. Every year, somehow, it just happens that they seem to grow. No concern for them about shrinking or regressing. They know they're going to grow. But then, sometime in their late teens, they stall. They don't expect to grow. About all that can happen for them is their brothers and maybe even their sister one day will pass them. And who likes that? Many of us in this room have stalled. It's been a long time since we've grown. In fact, most of us in this room have stalled in height, physically. But how about spiritually? Are you growing or are you stalled? Do you have the expectation of growth? Or do you step up to some figurative measuring post and are more concerned about actually regressing, or maybe being passed by your brothers and sisters. Maybe you hear that question and think, man, my spiritual growth is nobody's business. That's between me and God. My faith is a private thing. I'm an American, and I'm a free man. All I need is my Bible and my quiet time, and I'm good. I don't need the rest of you guys. If you're a child of the 60s, which we have a couple in this room, and you happen to be a fan of Simon and Garfunkel, your mantra might be, I am a rock. I am an island. But here's the truth. Maybe the uncomfortable truth. The truth is that while there are things we can do as individuals to encourage our spiritual growth, empowered by the Holy Spirit, our passage today shows that our growth is also dependent on one another to what we do together. In fact, look around this room. This might be a scary thought. Your growth is dependent on the people in this room. So let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll start at verse 7 and go all the way to 16. That's Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. As you turn or click there, let me catch you up on where we are in this series. It's our third Sunday of our August Pursue series. First Sunday was God pursuing us, and then last week, Michael Swindell, our new family pastor here at camp at on South Campus, preached on our new identity, pursuing our identity in Christ. And today, we're going to talk about pursuing others, Ephesians 4, 7 through 16, and next week. Ross will be here to talk about pursuing our mission in Christ. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the text I'm going to set a little context for us because we're a Bible church and we always need to do that then we're going to talk about three aspects of this grace gift that we're going to study today. Individual gifts the giver of the gifts and then finally shared gifts and then we'll talk about how that applies to Bethel. But let's Read from God's Word. Please stand with me, if you will. Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? so that it builds itself up in love. It's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Those of you who've been around Bethel a while know that most of our series are expository, meaning that we'll take a book of the Bible and we'll preach our way all the way through it, each passage fitting into the overall context of the book. In fact, in September, we're going to start the Gospel of John. And we're going to be in John... For a long time. Let's just say that. We'll be in John for a while. But as I mentioned earlier, we're doing something we do only a couple of times a year. We're doing a topical series, which means we pick out a subject and then we choose passages that support that subject. So we don't do that often, but as we drop down into a particular verse, a particular passage, it means we're going to have to spend a little time building some context around that passage so that we understand it. So the Apostle Paul writes this letter to the church in Ephesus while he's under house arrest in Rome. Scripture records him visiting the church at Ephesus at least three times and the final time in Acts 20 he tells the elders of the church to watch out for the false teachers which we see in this passage but he also exhorts them to love to love Christ and to love one another both in the book we're in today and also in his letters to Timothy, the pastor there of the church in Ephesus, we see that theme as well, the theme of love. The epistle starts in chapter 1, for the spiritual blessings we have in Christ and a prayer to understand this great mystery, which is the Gentiles being included into God's plan of salvation. Chapter 2, where Michael preached last week, explains our new position as individuals and then also uh, our new position corporately. God's grace and through faith in Jesus gives us this new identity. And then a place in a in the church, this new creation, joining both Jew and Gentile together. Then leading to chapter 3, verse 10, where Paul says, The purpose of the church, the church universal and the local church, even this church, is that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So you thought you were just coming here to sing some songs and hear a sermon. But Paul says what's happening is the wisdom of God is on display. It's on display to the spiritual rulers and authorities which we know are the enemies of God. Then in chapter 4, the first six verses tell us how that's even possible. What we have to do, we have to walk humbly, gently, patiently, and eager to maintain the unity. And then we see how that unity is possible because of the spiritual unity that already exists. One body, one spirit, and then in verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. Which brings us finally, to verse 7, where Paul is going to show the means or the way that God maintains unity within the church, which is where we see the first of our three views or the three aspects of these grace gifts. And these are probably our favorite kinds of gifts. They are individual gifts. Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. The next couple of the verses will make it clear that this gift of grace is from Christ himself and that each of us, at least all that have placed our faith in Jesus, have these gifts. The use of the conjunction, but, shows the transition from Paul's kind of collective admonition to all of us, or as my Greek professor used to say, all y'all. He really did. That was how we were supposed to translate plural, second person, sorry, plural, first person, all y'all. In verse 1 and then here in verse 7, he stresses the individual gift of grace we all receive. Not just church leaders mentioned in a couple of verses, but all of us. So what is this grace here in verse 7? It's really the gospel in one word. It's God's unmerited or undeserved favor in providing salvation for unworthy, undeserving sinners through Christ's sacrificial death. It is the good news. It's not our works. It's not our effort. It's not us doing more good than we do bad like we could somehow possibly measure that. It's not about being good enough based off a standard we get to set. It's about the perfect goodness of Christ about Jesus meeting that standard for us and then looking at us dead in our sin and saying, that one, that one, that one, there with me. And the grace gift given to each of us here is according to the measure of Christ's gift, which means that the amount or the size of the gift we get actually varies. Some of us get more grace than others. And I always read that as some of us need more grace than others. And by that I really mean that some of you need more grace than I do. Which just shows how much grace I need. But here's another aspect of grace we often overlook. And that is the concept of grace as divine enablement. God giving us precious gifts, little pieces of divine supernatural power. And that seems to be in play when Paul, in the Greek, when he pairs this article with this word, like in verse 7, that that's really the main focus of this gift. And it fits with the parallel passages on using gifts to build up the church in unity, like 1 Corinthians 12.4, Romans 12.6, where he says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to each of us, let us use them. Which sometimes, if we're honest, we really don't like those kinds of gifts. Gifts that enable work. It's kind of like giving your wife a vacuum cleaner for Christmas. Or your husband or your teenage son a lawnmower. Unless it's a really big one, then that's probably cool. But imagine the look on the face of your spouse as they open up that gift, and if you're lucky, they pretend to be excited. Or they might just burst into tears. There's one Christmas about eight or nine years ago, Eight or nine years into our marriage, sorry. Which means I should have known better. Where I wanted to give Serena a gift kind of like this. It was a Roomba. I don't know if you know what those are. It's one of those robot vacuum cleaners. So this was about fifteen years ago when they first came out. And my sister in law had one and she absolutely loved it. And we had four little kids at the time and As you can imagine, Serena was always picking up stuff off the floor that the kids were about to put in their mouths. And so I thought this would be a great gift. But I've been married long enough to know that I can't make the exact same mistake twice. So I hedged my bet by getting her another gift. So there was like the primary gift, and then there was the secondary gift. I don't even remember what the primary gift was, but the secondary gift was the Roomba. And she opened it, and she didn't look too pleased. She looked kind of skeptical. She didn't cry, which is good. But you know what she told me recently? She said that was the best gift I had ever gotten her. Now, I've spent some money on my wife over the years. I've bought her some nice things. Don't think bad about me. But she said that's the best gift, or the favorite gift that I've ever gotten her. And she said the reason that she liked that gift was because it did work for her. She loved the sound of Roomba as she laid in bed and knew that someone was cleaning her house. So, man, my counsel to you is there's a fine line here. Gifts to do work, not good. Gifts that do work for them, maybe. Maybe. Somewhere in there, there's trouble, I promise you. So that's the first aspect of the grace gift. It's for each of us individually, and it is for us to use. Now we'll learn about the second aspect of this grace gift, what the passage says about the giver of the gift, who is Christ, in verses 8 through 10. Verse 8 says, Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. This is a paraphrase of Psalm 68, particularly verse 18, except in Psalm 68 it refers to God. But Paul here is explicitly referring to Christ. The ESV smooths out the Greek when it says led a host of captives, but the NASB and several other translations read more like he captured the. A group of captives and ascended on high. So, Paul, who began chapter 4 by stating that he is a prisoner for the Lord, which is literally true as he wrote this book, also identifies all of us not as volunteers in the Lord's army, but as captives of Christ. And then verses 9 and 10 are kind of a parenthetical. Statement, kind of an interpretation of this paraphrase. And Paul points out that you can't ascend unless you've first descended, helping his Jewish brothers understand that the psalm they thought was about God the Father was really about the Messiah, Jesus, who descended from heaven down to earth. And Paul ends verse 10 with a phrase that describes the purpose of Christ descending and then ascending above the heavens. To fill all things. Paul uses this phrase several times, such as Colossians 1.19, where he says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. He uses it again, Ephesians one twenty two, and he put all things under his feet and gave them his head over all things to the church which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. So this is not, does not mean that Christ is in everything, this, this lectern, this stage. What it means is that He is preeminent. He's above everything. He is the conqueror, which means He has the authority to give these gifts to whoever he pleases. Whatever gift he chooses and in whatever portion he desires to give it. And that those gifts are effective against all the enemies that he has just conquered. So if you don't like your gift, think you should have gotten more, then you can take it up with him. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, That was never a good idea. And now as a parent, I can assure you it's not a good idea. So that's the second aspect of the grace gift, the preeminence of the giver. The first was that the grace gift is for each one of us individually for us to use. And then the next aspect of this grace gift is that it is a shared gift which starts in verse 11, and 11 through 16 is one long sentence in Greek with lots of confusing grammar, but we'll try and walk through this one verse at a time. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Now, before I keep reading, let me make three brief points about this. One, if you're ever at a church where a pastor reads this and says, See, I'm God's gift to you in a way that seems to make this about them, then send them to verse 2 and remind them that Paul says we are to walk with all humility, and then find a new church, or see if you can return that gift. Two, these, these are examples in this passage of divine enablement. They're gifting for roles. We're not talking about the offices, the established offices themselves. And three, these are not Roomba-type gifts. They don't do the work for you in a way, if you look at this. They do the work to you. Look at verse 12, where it gives the immediate purpose of this grace gift, which is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So this isn't a Roomba gift where the shepherds and teachers do the work for you. They have been called out to equip you and to teach you, to enable you, to encourage you, to invite you into the work of the ministry, the work of the church for the purpose of building it up, building each other up. Their role, their work, if you will, is to equip. It also speaks to what's prevalent in our culture, this artificial distinction between clergy and the laity, between the professionals, if you will, and the amateurs. This passage says that's all wrong. We are all engaged in the work of the ministry. For some, their specific work is equipping. But we are all working. And look what the goal is in verse 13. Until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Which means we can't stop doing the work of the ministry until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So, although there is diversity of gifts given to each individual and there's this diversity of roles mentioned in the previous verse, back in verse 11, the result of the working out of that diversity is unity. And there's no retirement from the work here. There are three signs that the work is complete. It's not done until we all attain the unity and the knowledge, until we are all mature, and until we all reach the stature of Christ which can be translated as the full height of Christ. Another way of saying maturity. Which means I know this. You guys still have some work to do on me, at least. So we need to get busy. So let's go back to the Hager height chart. Can we put it up there? There we go. See, there is a gap between where the boys am and where I am. I know that they all want to be as tall or taller than me, but the odds of that happening given the height of my wife are not all that great. So if the whole purpose of this chart was for them to get to my height, wouldn't that whole exercise be discouraging for them? In the same way, should we be discouraged by reading this passage and think the only way I get to the full knowledge of the Son of God to the full stature of Christ is for me to die so what's the point but look at the end of verse 12 although the work is done by individuals the growth we're talking about here is for the body of Christ so individually we can't get there in this life but somehow spiritually cosmically, supernaturally through the whole history of the church, collectively at some point we will meet that standard. And then Paul expresses the result of this growth, first negatively, then positively. So, negatively in verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried from every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You ever been out in the ocean, not sitting on the shore where the waves kind of all travel in the same direction in kind of the same pattern, but I mean way out there where the tides and the winds can be going in very different directions. And something floating seems to go this way and then that way. And that's what Paul is saying that we can avoid now this aimlessness, this instability remember his admonition to the elders of the church in Ephesus. Avoid false teachers. Which means there can be an immediate benefit for all of us doing the work of the ministry. The stability, the ability to discern false teaching. To see through the lies of the world. And then Paul states the result of all of us working together positively And although the ESV says it, it translates it as speak the truth, it really has more of the sense of proving or being true. Not so much just speaking. Although that would be part of it, it's really much broader than that. It's contrasted with false speech and deceitful schemes. So you could read it like, be the truth in love. Becoming more like Christ, who is the head of the church, which in this text means he's both preeminent, but he is also the source of growth. And there's something interesting here in, in the Greek word joined. It's actually only used here and then back in 221. And it reads here like a medical term, but that's really not what it is. Here, it's actually a construction term. It refers to how a stonemason would take a seemingly random group of stones and before they had a lot of mortar, he would chip and chisel those stones and place them together so that they fit together. Which I think is a great metaphor for the church. Not just taking who we are, slapping us together, sticking some mortar in there to kind of keep us apart, but chiseling and shaping us and fitting us all together. So if Christ is the source of all the growth and he's holding all of it together we know he's going to do his part what are the constraints? Someone's got to be messing this up. And the answer of course is we're messing this up. The first opportunity is when we don't be the truth when we don't live the truth when we're not the ambassadors that we should be we turn the world away but the second is really the main point of the message today look at the middle of verse 16 where it says when each part is working properly each part not some part not most parts not 20% of the parts each individual part. The passage today teaches us that each of us, each of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, receive a gift of grace that is both undeserved favor, but it is also divine enablement. And the purpose of that gift is to do the work of the ministry, whether that's the equipping work of the leaders or the doing work of everyone else. The gift is not for you. It is a shared gift. It's for someone else's benefit. It's for the church, for building up the church. And as the text says, it only works when each part is doing their part working properly. I grew up going to church, even went to this church when I was in high school, a long time ago. And when you go to seminary... If you've grown up in the church, there's a lot that they teach you, and you hear it, and you're like, oh yeah, that's kind of that's pretty much what I believe. That's not surprising. But you want to know what the biggest surprise for me was in seminary, the biggest area of theology where there was a gap between my experience and what I was being taught about the doctrine of the church. What I caught from just being around church. Was that was the place you went to be fed. The place you went to sing some songs. The place you went to learn the stories of the Bible. To kind of get filled up for the week. You'd kind of run out of gas as the week went on. You'd need to get filled back up again. And then, as you're leaving in the car on the drive home, you'd list out your disappointments. The sermon which I'm sure many of you will do today, the song selection, that person who didn't remember your name even though you've introduced yourself three times. But I don't think I ever had anyone tell me that the church was the place you go to use your God-given gifts to serve. Maybe they said that, and maybe I just didn't get it. But in terms of what I'd soaked up being a kid in church, I had totally missed that. So I think this passage says, if we don't feel connected to the church, use our gifts to serve. Don't like the way a particular ministry is being run? Use your gifts to serve. Because we need you. All of you. Our spiritual growth and our spiritual maturity depends on you. So how does that happen? Well, first you've got to have a gift, which means at some point in your life, maybe even today, you recognize that you are a sinner who does not meet God's perfect standard. You don't measure up. There's this gap between where you are on the height chart and where God is. And in faith, you turn to Jesus and you say, I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you stepped out of heaven and descended down to the earth, that you lived a perfect sinless life, and you stepped onto a cross and were killed for my sins, and that you lay in a grave for three days, were buried, and then rose from the dead and ascended, up into heaven, and because of that you've given me the gift of grace. That's how you get the gift. If that's you, and you're trying to figure out how to serve, then I'd say start the membership process with an elder at our church, or one of the ministry leaders that's out there. Register online for Discover Bethel. We had the slide up earlier, Wednesday, September 5th, to learn more about the church and commit to the church and although I promise we didn't plan it this way but the same day we're preaching a pastor that screams we need you we're recruiting for family ministry team members out in the lobby and I can promise you that whatever the gift you have they can use it of course they need teachers from preschool all the way up to high school but they also need friendly folks for the first impression team They need patient folks who can hold crying babies. They need hospitality folks to organize events. They need cooks who will cook for teachers. They need wise folks who will just hang out with teenagers on Sundays or Wednesday nights. They need administrative folks to help for all of the work. And safety folks just to watch over everybody. Whatever gift you have, I promise you there's a place for it to be used here in the church. Like I said, we need you. In a lot of ways, it's like the Hager family growth chart. There are some things that you have to do to grow. You need to eat and you need to sleep, but you can't make yourself grow. In the same way, our passage today says that we are to be the truth in love and we're to use our gifts, but ultimately, it's Christ that makes us grow. He is the one who produces the growth. And the way He has chosen to do that is in community, in His church. So please join us. We all need each of you. Let's pray. Father, I confess I don't know why you designed it that way, why in your plan you've made us so dependent on each other to grow. But Father, I'm convicted that your text clearly says that, that we are not isolated, that we are not alone, that we need each other in a way that is deeper and more profound than our culture would understand. So Father, I pray that Bethel would be that kind of church, Father, where we confess our dependence not just on you, which is absolutely true, but also on one another. That you would knit us together not just as a collection of individuals slapped together with some mortar, but Father, that you would chisel and shape and pair us stack us together in a way that would be beautiful and that would be enduring. Father, if there are anyone in here who does not know you, does not know your son was relying on a height chart of their own construction and not the perfect standard that you've set out, Father, I pray that you would raise up people to be truthful in their lives not just speak it but to be it Father and that your spirit would stir in their hearts in a way that would make the truth of who you are and the truth of who your son Jesus is undeniable and real in their lives and Father that all of that would be done in a way that would be bring you and your son Jesus great glory I pray all this In the name of Jesus, in the power of your Spirit, amen.